in case you are relatively new to this congregation or just visiting the the pastor who led us in prayer earlier, Pastor Rolo, is our lead pastor, and uh, just to help save him a thousand questions after service, he's here for the weekend. So we're grateful to have you, brother. We're very blessed for your uh, fellowship. Yeah, praise the Lord. Um, we have sent, we've decided as a church to send Pastor Rolo as our missionary to the military part-time. So he's training for that. Pray for him, continue that the Lord would strengthen his will and his knees all for God's glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this morning. Thank you for the blessing of worship on this day with your people. And we ask, Almighty King, that as your word is preached, that we would hear not from the preacher, but from you. Use him as a vessel, Lord, to deliver your word faithfully. But Lord, you speak to us, please. And by your spirit, help us to not just hear, but to see to cherish, and to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the beginning, God established his kingdom. The first human citizens of that kingdom were Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were to tend God's garden, and they were to expand his kingdom by being fruitful and multiplying. But it wasn't too long before they rebelled against their king. Still, the king remained faithful and promised to restore what they had broken. Sadly, rather than responding with gratitude, humanity as a whole became more and more wicked until God decided to start over by sending a great flood and preserving only several people for his kingdom. Eventually, he called Abraham to go to a land that God would provide for him and establish a visible representation of his kingdom. Abraham went, and his wife Sarah gave birth to Isaac, who gave birth to Jacob, who would then be renamed Israel. And from then on, God's kingdom on earth would be known as Israel. And like Adam and Eve, they also were to spread his kingdom all over the world. A great famine drove them to Egypt, where they became subjects under another king, Pharaoh. But God, their true king, rescued them from Egypt. Through Moses, he led them out of Egypt and toward the land that God promised to Abraham. But just like the people before them, they rebelled against their king, and they lost the right to enter the land. But a generation later, after Moses had passed, God used Joshua to lead this next generation of people into the land and to take it back from those who didn't belong there. They were successful by God's strength. After Joshua died, God, the king, appointed judges to protect the people and maintain order. However, the people rebelled against their king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Eventually, this judge, Samuel, passed on his duties to his sons, who ended up doing a terrible job at it. And at this point, the people were disgruntled, and they demanded to have a king instead of judges. But there was just one problem. They already had a king. It was God himself. But they didn't want God as king. They wanted a human king, like all of the nations around them. 
God had Samuel warn them of the consequences of having a human king, but still they insisted on having a king. So God allowed them to have one. Saul was not a good king. Eventually, he sinned so grievously against the Lord our God that God removed the kingship from Saul's line. Instead of Saul, God chose David and promised David that the throne would remain in his line forever and ever. David was a good king, the best human king that they would ever have, but he was not without sin. At one point, his hubris in taking a census led to the deaths of many people. Infamously, he also committed adultery and murder in the matter of Bathsheba and Uriah. And he also ended up being a derelict father, which caused all sorts of other problems. Solomon, David's son, was very wise, except for when he wasn't. He took many wives and concubines, the majority of whom did not worship Yahweh and ended up finishing his reign poorly. His sons feuded and ended up dividing the kingdom into two kingdoms. Most of these kings of these two kingdoms were not good kings, which ended up leading to the northern kingdom of Israel being destroyed and the southern kingdom of Judah being conquered and taken into exile. All of that happened because Israel rejected God as its king. Brothers and sisters, lest we think of ourselves too highly, note that we are prone ourselves to reject our king. 1 John 1.8 reminds us, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And what is sin, if not at least a momentary rejection of our king? What is sin, if not desiring for a moment that someone else be king? even us. Our passage reminds us today that God is the incomparable king. And the hope is that if we recognize this reality, that he is the incomparable king and store it up in our hearts, then we will more often bow the knee to him instead of rebelling against him. When we see the beauty of our king, our prayerful hope is that we will be faithful to him and nothing else. God is the incomparable king. And we're going to see that from four angles, starting with this. Number one, he rules over all creation. He rules over all creation. We're going to spend most of our time on the first three points, and then we'll just touch on the fourth one very briefly. Okay? He rules over all creation. We saw some of this last week already, but... It, it doesn't hurt us to uh, consider it once again, right? Verse 21 begins with this question, Do you not know? Shouldn't you know, O Israel, that God rules over all creation? Do you not know? Has it not been revealed to you? That's what Isaiah is getting at here. They should have known. In one sense, it's actually revealed to all people. Romans 1.20 says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. 
the fact that Yahweh is eternally powerful and the fact that he is God is made evident in creation. Anyone can look at creation and conclude that there is a creator God. And since he's the creator God, he must rule over all of it. So again, in one sense, the reality that he rules over all creation is evident not just to the people of God, but to all people. But it was specially revealed to Israel. They knew from Genesis that God was the creator of the heavens and the earth. They also sang about this regularly, right? A few, saw, a few passages from the Psalms. Psalm 95, verses 3 through 5. The Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 145.13, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Do you not know, O Israel? They should have known. And they are being chided, scolded a little bit here. Israel, how would you turn to other gods? Why would you rely on other kings? Don't you know that God rules over all creation? Verse 21 continues, Do you not hear? It's something they should have known, and it's also something that they should have heard. The responsibility of the people of Israel was for them to keep talking about these things, keep hearing about the things of God. They were called to teach God's ways to their children. They were called to talk about God constantly in their homes and in public places. They were also taught corporately by priests and prophets. They even had feasts to remind them, celebrations to recall what God had done. And they had this God-inspired songbook found in the middle of your Bibles called the Psalms that reveals all throughout that God is God, the ruler of all creation. Do you not hear, O Israel? Are your ears closed to these truths? Verse 21 goes on. Has it not been told you from the beginning? This is not new information. This is not something God has revealed around 700 to 500 BC. It hadn't been recently revealed to Israel that God rules over all creation. This was taught and revealed from the very beginning. The very first words of Genesis say, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It reveals God as almighty and sovereign over all his creation. That's Genesis. And then Exodus again reveals God's power and his control over natural elements, proving to all the nations that it wasn't Egypt's gods that were in control, but Israel's God. And then Deuteronomy 4.39 says, Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above And on the earth beneath, there is no other. 
This has been told to them from the beginning. Israel, why are you acting like you don't know this? Why are you acting like you don't believe this? Finally, verse 21 says, Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Again, the reality that God rules over all creation didn't suddenly come true when the scriptures were written. Okay? It has always been true. Ever since God created all things, he has been ruler over all creation. And again, that's not evident only from the scriptures, but it's evident from nature itself. Nature itself. Israel, have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Again, as we often say that in the flesh, we're not better than the Israelites. How often do we forget what we know or neglect the information that we have? How often could it be said to us, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Because of our ongoing battle with sin and because of the limitations of these brains that have been impacted by the fall, we so often forget what we know. And that's why we constantly need to be reminded of the truths of God's word. We need to be constantly reminded. There are some people who take the attitude, oh, I already know all that. And they feel like they're above hearing it again. Such people have clearly forgotten, first of all, what the Bible says about humility. They've also forgotten what the Bible says about why they ought to be humble. They also fail to see that the fact that the Bible itself is quite repetitive. God, knowing our frames, knowing that we are but dust, knowing our weaknesses and our limitations, he repeats concepts over and over again in the scriptures. Don't be the person who thinks that they always need to be hearing something new. God intends for you to remind yourself and be reminded of what you already know because you are forgetful. You're going to forget most of this sermon by the end of the week. Try not to. If you weren't so forgetful, you wouldn't sin so much. I say that about myself also. So in this gentle rebuke in Isaiah, we see that also a gentle rebuke for us as well. It's for Israel and also for us. We should know this. We should know that God rules over all creation. And all of the practical implications of knowing that should be evident in our lives. Graciously, rather than leave his people in forgetful rebellion, he reminds them who he is. And this morning he reminds us who he is. Isaiah says in verse 22, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. This is from where we draw this concept of kingship in this passage. Okay? Above the circle of the earth is where God sits. And what that means is that that's where he sits on his throne. This is how the word sits is regularly used in the Old Testament. Here are a few examples. Psalm 9, verse 7. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. Psalm 47, verse 8. God reigns over the nations. 
God sits on his holy throne. And Isaiah 6, 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. God sits on his throne, for he is king over all creation. Where does he sit? According to verse 22, above the circle of the earth. Now, if we were to take all of the poetic descriptions of the word, of the world rather, literally, all the poetic descriptions of the world literally, then what we would have is a flat earth covered by a dome called the firmament, which separates the oceans from the rainwater above, pillars supporting the earth below, heaven being directly above us, and Sheol being directly below us. So the imagery is that all of this is contained in one big circle. And by the way, don't stress out because this description of the heavens and the earth doesn't match what we know about the planet and the universe and the spiritual realm today. This is simply poetic imagery, and it's powerful. After all, God is spirit. He doesn't sit, okay? That's a hint for you that this is, that this is poetic for us to understand. Okay? But in this powerful illustration, God sits on his throne over all creation. He sits above the circle of the earth. And what does that imply? He rules over all creatures. He rules over all events. The people of God didn't need to worry. They didn't need to doubt. And they certainly didn't need to turn to other gods or kings. He rules over all Speaking of the earth, Isaiah continues in verse 22, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. This is apropos because you've, you've been seeing an influx of grasshoppers in Las Vegas recently, right? You, you know what they're like. And as gross as it is to walk through a block party of grasshoppers, they're tiny compared to you. They're tiny. It would take thousands of grasshoppers to make up the volume of an average human body. That's what we're like as inhabitants on the earth. We're like grasshoppers. Let's take a moment to visualize just how tiny we are in the grand scheme of creation. Okay? If we wanted to visualize the diameter of the earth, in other words, poke a hole straight through the earth, through the middle of it, and all the way to the other end, we would need to line up 7.5 million humans head to toe. That's how we would, if we wanted to stack up through the earth, 7.5 million humans. The diameter of the sun is 110 times that long. 110 times that. And our sun is actually a relatively average star, by the way. But you could fit one octillion basketballs in the sun. One octillion, that's one, followed by 27 zeros. That's how many basketballs you could fit in the sun. And you could fit five billion of our suns in the largest star that we know of. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, contains 100 to 400 billion stars. And it's estimated that there are 100 to 200 billion galaxies. God is confirming for us in his word what we can observe in the general revelation of creation, and that is we are tiny 
And even that is a magnificent understatement. God sits above the circle of the earth, and the earth's inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Verse 22 continues to tell us, tell us that it is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. So what we just described, the 100 to 200 billion galaxies, outer space, could rightly be called the heavens. God stretches out the heavens, the universe, like a curtain. You may have stretched out curtains before. It's easy. God does that with the universe. He further spreads the universe like a tent to dwell in. The Judahites would have been familiar with the concept of spreading tents. That would have been routine for them. God spreads the universe like a tent. This is our God. He rules over heaven and earth. We are minuscule. Creation is massive. But creation is minuscule compared to our God. And what this means is that God rules over everything. And it's not difficult for him to do so. This reminds us of what we heard last week. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. But now we take it another step. He's not only big, but he sits on his throne above everything. What are you anxious about? What are your biggest fears? God sits above the circle of the earth. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Nothing is too big nor too small for God. Will you trust him? Will you submit to him? Will you be faithful to him? Just an observation. You guys are pretty quiet this morning. But I hope you're not quiet in your heart. I hope you're saying, amen, praise God. So God rules over all creation. Furthermore, number two, he rules over all kings. He rules over all kings. Verse 23 says that God is he who brings princes to nothing. God is, a, God is able and has been willing to bring down the most powerful rulers throughout history. He brought down Pharaoh, who oppressed the Israelites and refused to let them go. He sent ten plagues on Egypt and drowned Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. He brought down Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, who conquered Jerusalem and took many of its people into exile. God made him lose his sanity and live like an animal for seven years until Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged God's sovereignty. He brought down Belshazzar, who defiled the sacred vessels from the temple in Jerusalem, and he gave his entire kingdom of Babylon over to the Persians and the Medes. In the New Testament, he brought down Herod Agrippa, who persecuted the early church and killed James. When Herod accepted praise like a god, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms. He also brought down Nero, Napoleon Bonaparte, Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein, and many others. How do we know God did that? Because rulers only rule for as long as God allows. And they stop when God wills their reigns would end. And in the end, 
He's going to bring down the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the ancient serpent, Satan himself. God brings princes to nothing. Verse 23, and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. This phrase is saying the same thing in a different way, just for emphasis. But the word you see there in verse 23, emptiness, is the same Hebrew word that's used to talk about how the earth was formless in Genesis 1-2. He makes the rulers formless and empty. Verse 24 begins, Scarcely are they planted. The rulers of the earth are compared to plants that have just been planted. Plants that have just been planted have not taken deep root. They haven't established themselves. That's how the rulers of the world are. Even Russian President Vladimir Putin, who has been in power for 24 years, has scarcely been planted. Compared to God, Putin is kind of new to this leadership thing. Again, in emphatic parallelism, verse 24 adds, scarcely sown. The rulers of this world are like seeds that have just been sown. They haven't even started germinating yet. And then verse 24 says, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. There is no depth. There is no strength in their root. That is what the rulers of this world are like. And then we read in verse 24 that they are in that state when he blows on them and they wither. Do you see how nothing these rulers are compared to God? All he needs to do is blow on them and they wither. Verse 24 continues, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Stubble is the dry stalks left after harvesting and usually the wind would just blow them away. But how much more would a tempest, a violent storm, blow away stubble? That's how the rulers of this world compare to God. When he blows on them, they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. All of this leads up to this question in verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Who are you going to compare God to? And when you compare them, you bring God down to the level of what you're comparing him to, which is insulting. That would be like asking, which do you prefer, mom's home cooking or expired milk? Yes, technically you can compare the two. But to even ask the question is insulting to mom's home cooking, right? And in the same way, comparing God to the rulers of this world is insulting to God. They don't compare to him. He rules far above them. To say that he outranks them like a five-star general outranks a private would be a gross understatement. To whom then will we compare God that he should be like them? He is, verse 26, the Holy One. He is set apart. He is the only one set apart like he is. He is the Holy One. And then in verse 26, we read this. Lift up your eyes on high and see. 
He's calling our attention to the skies above us. Literally, look, look up and see. Recalling the reality that he rules over all creation. He encourages the Israelites to look up at the stars and the planets and behold. Now, we live in a city, so this might not have as much impact on us. But in ideal conditions, away from light pollution, and if you have excellent eyesight, a human being could reasonably look up and count 2,500 to 3,000 stars. God's question for them and for us is, who created these? Verse 24, who created these? And remember that 1.3 million Earths can fit in the star that we call the sun. Take that into consideration when you look up at the 2,500 to 3,000 stars and hear the question, who created these? And this time the question is not rhetorical. God actually answers it. Look at the middle of verse 26. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. What this means is that God brings these stars into existence. One estimate says that 275 million stars are being formed throughout the universe every single day. And while those stars may be forming due to natural processes, it is God who governs those processes and upholds them. So all credit goes to him for bringing out the star's host by number. And not only does he see to the formation of the stars, but he also, verse 26, is calling them all by name. He's calling them all by name. He knows the name of every single star in the universe. Doesn't just know the names, he named them all. He told Adam, name the animals, but he himself names the stars. Furthermore, it can be said of the stars that they are all present or accounted for. The end of verse 26 says, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. On any given Sunday, us pastors can't even say that all of the members of the church are present or accounted for. We might notice that certain people are missing, but we don't know where everyone is. That's because we don't have great might. That's because we're not strong in power. We can't even keep track of where 100% of our members are at any given moment. But when it comes to the 200 billion trillion stars in the universe, not a single star is missing. How? It's by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power. God's might and strength are directly associated with his omniscience, that he knows everything. Because not only does he know where the stars are, but he also upholds their very existence and governs their positions. Now, in one sense, this section about stars talks about how God rules over all creation. But in another sense, it's pointing out how God, moreover, rules over all kings. And the reason is, is that kings and their subjects in Isaiah's time worship the stars. They worship the stars. Deuteronomy 4.19 warns against this. 
And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So Deuteronomy 4.19 warns the people against worshiping the stars. And sadly, 2 Kings 17.16 reveals that God's people did, in fact, get swayed by other nations to that end. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped, here's that phrase again, all the host of heaven and served Baal. So these stars that these kings were worshipping instead of God, who created them? Who created those stars? The one who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. So even the stars that these kings were bowing down to were created by God himself. That's how high he is above other kings. Now what's the point that God is making here? The king of Babylon, under whom Judah was in exile, was nothing compared to God. Nothing. When SEAL Team 6 went into Pakistan to kill or capture Osama bin Laden, the SEALs were an overwhelming force for the people who were in that compound. But the SEALs were still in some danger. The, the people in the compound were armed, and they did fire on the SEALs. So they were in some danger. But when it comes to God and the king of Babylon, God was not under any danger whatsoever. So Judah, don't worry about the rulers under whom you're in captivity. God rules over all kings. If he says he's going to bring you out from under their control, he's going to do that. Christian, do you believe that, that about your own exile here in this world? Do you believe that? We live in a world that is controlled, with God's permission, by Satan. 1 John 5.19 says this, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Elsewhere, Satan is called the God of this world and the prince of the power of the air. Ultimately, God is in control, but he allows Satan to rule here in some way for some time. Satan doesn't rule God's people, but he certainly rules the people around us. Do you believe that when God returns to remove us from our exile, that Satan will be nothing for him? It's not like a battle of good and evil where good barely, barely makes it through. It's not like that. Revelation 20 verses 9 through 10 says of Satan's forces on the last day, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. So you imagine Satan's forces marching and they're about ready to attack. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan, though he is much for us, is nothing for God. How much less are the rulers of this world who cause us great distress? 
every election cycle, all Americans get into a panic. Every time, people from all sides say things like, if so-and-so is elected, that's going to be the end of America as we know it. It's a matter of life and death for our democracy. I'm going to move to Canada. Why didn't they move to Canada? But it happens every election cycle, and it happens from all points of the political spectrum. And yes, leadership is important, voting is important, patriotism is important. Um, but the results are always, by God's grace, never as bad as the fear-mongering that happens during election cycles suggests. But Christians can fall into this kind of fear and hysteria. You need to understand something, brothers and sisters in Christ. God rules over Joe Biden. God rules over Donald Trump. God rules over Vladimir Putin. He rules over Xi Jinping. He rules over artificial intelligence. Are you going to live in fear? Don't hear this wrong. Rulers can do us harm. Possibly AI will do us harm. But God rules over them all. They can't do anything that he himself doesn't mean for good. And they can't do anything to thwart God's promises. And in their lifetimes, God is going to bring them to nothing. There is no ruler in this world that is going to outlast God. Therefore, don't put your trust in them. Don't put your trust in them. Hence, Psalm 146.3, which Pastor Corey is going to preach this Wednesday, please come, says this. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Don't put your trust in them, and also don't fear them. Trust and fear God. He's going to accomplish all of his purposes over and against all the rulers of this world. So follow him. Put not your trust in princes. Trust in him. God rules over all creation. He rules over kings. And thirdly, he rules over our doubts. He rules over our doubts. Verse 27 says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Jacob and Israel are the same people being addressed here, right? Remember that their ancestor, Jacob, was renamed by God, Israel. Why does God call them Israel, though, instead of Judah? After all, it was the northern kingdom that had taken on the name of Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah, and Israel was wiped out. He calls Judah Israel because God's people are called Israel. It didn't matter to God that they split in two and they took on different names. The people whom God made a covenant with were called Israel. And that's probably why he addresses them here as Jacob and Israel. He is having them recall their relationship with him. A relationship that he unilaterally and graciously established with them. So then, why would they say, verse 27, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? On what basis could they even ask those questions? The first question suggests, God isn't even watching over me. The second question suggests, 
God doesn't even care what injustice are being done against me. Are these doubts that we ourselves could experience? When we're going through personal suffering, can't we feel sometimes like God isn't paying attention or that he doesn't even care? When we pray and pray and pray and it seems like God isn't even listening, can't we feel abandoned? When we're feeling far from him and it seems like nothing is helping, can't we be prone to question him? And when we observe the injustices that are going on around us, might we question God's justice? Yes, we can experience those doubts. But that does not mean that those doubts are warranted. The questions that are being asked of Israel are the same questions that can be asked of us. Why do you say, O Christians, and speak, O saints, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Why would we say those things? Let's hear God's answer to our doubts. The beginning of verse 28 asks once again, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Brothers and sisters, we know the answers to our doubts, don't we? We have a right theological framework that concludes that God is good and that he is sovereign. These questions, again, are a gentle chiding from the Lord. Don't you know this stuff? Doesn't your website say that you are a Reformed church? Haven't you heard this already? What is it that God is drawing our attention to? Verse 28, notice. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Here we find four characteristics of God that rule over our doubts. First is that he's everlasting. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. Now, how does the fact that God is everlasting affect whether we should doubt his care or his goodness toward us? Well, if God is everlasting, he is not affected by time. We're affected by time. As we get older, we get weaker and more jaded and grumpy. God is not that way. He was and is and is to come. And his goodness and compassion toward us never change. So he's everlasting. The second is that he's the creator. He's the creator. He created the ends of the earth, implying that he created everything. If God created everything, then he is sovereign over everything. Your circumstances are not out of sight. The injustices being done against you will not be ignored. They may be allowed for some time, but they're going to be made right before the end. So he's everlasting. He's the creator. The third is that he is all-powerful. He doesn't faint or grow weary. One time I observed a mother giving in to the whining of her child. At first she stood her ground. She told him he needed to wait in the house, but he persisted in whining, and she frustratedly said, 
fine. And he got what he wanted. Now, we would most likely all agree that it's not best to give in to your child's whining because it'll teach the child that if they just whine enough that they can get what they want. But we also understand the weakness that we have of being worn down. When we're worn down, our resolves may falter and our inhibitions, our inhibitions may drop, but that's not the way that God is. God does not faint. He does not grow weary. He does not get worn down. And therefore, his resolve and his decision-making are never changed. God will always do what is good. He will always do what is most glorifying to him. And consistent with that, he will always do what's in our best interest. He will never cave from being worn down. He's everlasting. He's the creator. And he's all-powerful. And fourth, he's all-wise. He's all-wise. His understanding, our verse says, is unsearchable. We don't understand everything that's going on. The Judahites in exile may not have understood why God had seemingly abandoned them in Babylon, even though his scriptures were crystal clear on the matter. Or even if they understood why God was punishing them, perhaps they didn't agree with his judgments. But here's the thing. They were not all wise. God is. And we need to hear that this morning. We don't know what's best. God does. Now, in parent-toddler relationships, for the most part, parents do know better than toddlers do. The famous why, because I said so, exchange actually makes sense because adults are typically wiser than their toddlers, right? But our wisdom has no comparison to God's wisdom. None. So when God allows suffering into our lives, for example, the answer, because I said so, should be enough for us. If we acknowledge that God knows what he's doing, then we should never ask the questions, are you even paying attention to me, God? Why are you letting this happen to me, God? Again, these are natural questions, but they are unfounded when we acknowledge that God is the everlasting, all-powerful, and all-wise creator. God rules over our doubts. He is bigger than our doubts. And if we would walk in the spirit instead of the flesh, then our doubts could be squashed as we acknowledge God as the everlasting, all-powerful, and all-wise creator. Brother, sister, what is going on in your life right now that is tempting you to doubt him? What is happening that makes you prone to think that God isn't seeing your circumstances? Or worse, that God does see your circumstances but doesn't care? The remedy for your distress is exchanging Satan's lies about God for truth. Let me read five passages to you quickly that you can hang on to when you're tempted to believe the lies of the devil on this subject. The devil tells you God doesn't see and or he doesn't care. And these passages are listed among the passages at the bottom of your bulletin. I wanna want make sure I said Satan says those things, not God. Let me simply read them to you without any elaboration, these passages. When the righteous cry for help, 
The Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That's Psalm 34, 17 through 18. Matthew 6, 25 through 26. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 3, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You searched out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. And Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Oh, brothers and sisters, have you not known? Have you not heard? God is the everlasting, all-powerful, and all-wise creator. He knows what you're going through, and he cares. And what other mean, others mean for evil, God means for good. And he's going to work all things out for his glory and for your good. He rules over our doubts. Submit your doubts to him. He rules over all creation. He rules over all kings. He rules over our doubts. And fourth, he rules over our weaknesses. He rules over our weaknesses. Verse 29, he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. The faint in this verse are those who are weary, those who are weak. He gives power to such people. And in parallelism, we read in the second part of the verse, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Have you ever felt in this life that you have given it everything that you have and you have nothing left? He increases the strength of such people. Everybody has their limits. Even young people. Look at verse 30. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. Youths are known for their seemingly endless energy and strength. But in this world of trouble, even faints, even youths shall faint and be weary. Even you shall faint and be weary. Even young men shall fall exhausted. But we have access to power. We have access to strength. How do we receive this power and strength promised to us? Read verses 30 and 31 together. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It would be those who would wait for the Lord that would renew their strength. Now, remember the context of this prophecy, right? God's people were going into exile, and they would be in a situation where they could reasonably feel faint and weary. 
but they would renew their strength if they waited for the Lord. Waiting for the Lord means trusting him patiently. It means believing that he is who he is and that he will do what he said he will do. A person who leans on God in this way will have their strength renewed. It says of such people that they shall mount up with wings like eagles. To mount up means to ascend. People who would wait for the Lord would ascend as if they were eagles with wings. Eagles were associated with strength and power. And those who would wait for the Lord would soar like eagles. The other metaphor in verse 31 is that of a walker or runner. There are some who like walking or running long distances for some reason. But even marathon runners will grow weary eventually. But it's not so for those who wait for the Lord. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. They can endure the trials of the Babylonian exile. They can endure any trials for that matter. Now, can they do it simply because they have the power of positive thinking? No. This strength is from God. Remember verse 29. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. And so what we're seeing here is that God is the one who gives power. And God is the one who gives strength. But he specifically gives it to those who wait for him. Could he give power and strength even to those who fail to wait for him? Sure. But what we're seeing in this passage is that he is especially pleased to give power and strength to those who wait for him. He actually seems to be guaranteeing that he will do it for them. He rules over our weaknesses, meaning our weaknesses are nothing compared to him. There is no amount of weakness that he is unable to overcome. And if you would like to stop feeling weary and faint in this walk, here's what you need to do. Trust God patiently. Lean on him. Hold fast to his promises and put your faith in him. And saint, he will give power to you. He will increase your strength. And you will renew your strength and mount up with wings like eagles. You will not be weary. You will walk and not faint. Wait for the Lord, O weary Christians. He rules over all creation. He rules over all kings. He rules over our doubts. He rules over our weaknesses. And so we see that he is the incomparable king. Brothers and sisters, to whom will we bow the knee? In whom will we put our trust? Will we put our trust in the natural process of this world, processes of this world? He created them. Will we put our trust in princes? He rules over them. Brothers and sisters, we need not doubt. He is who he says he is, and he will do what he said he would do. And brothers and sisters, we need not be weary and faint he will give us the power and strength that we need to live these lives for his glory. So wait for him. Who is this incomparable king? 
From the heavens, God has always reigned. But since it has been humanity's desire to have a human king, he even provided for us one of those. Where Saul failed, and David failed, and Solomon failed, and all of their descendants failed, Jesus Christ the Son, fully God and fully man, succeeded, living a perfect life and ruling flawlessly. And having died on the cross for sinners like you and me and rising three days later, he conquered for us our enemies of sin, death, and Satan. And then he ascended to his throne at the right hand of the Father where he shall reign forever and ever. This Lord Jesus rules over all creation. He rules over all kings. He rules over our doubts. He rules over our weaknesses. Trust in Jesus today. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for showing us once again and reminding us of who you are. For many of these ideas, they're not new to us, and yet we so desperately need to hear them and remember them again today. Help us to remember, O oh God, that you rule over all creation and kings, that you rule over our doubts and weaknesses, and help us to trust and obey you and submit to you, O oh God. Where else would we go? You have the words of life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.